0: We are starting a new, um, <clears throat> in a new direction uh, in this fall in the sense that we're thinking about evangelism, which is the, the translated and a paraphrase version, it means passing out promises. The angel of evangel means one who brings good news. And certainly, as we get into the book of Acts, uh, we're going to find a lot of things in this this book it 's a wonderful book, and so I hope you are reading and listening and learning uh from this book so that God can change you from the inside out. But as we get into uh, uh today 's topic uh i want to I want to talk about as we move from the second sermon that Peter gave in the temple, the first one was at Pentecost. And here's the second sermon about what happened, <clears throat> what Peter said about the beggar. But we're going to get into that uh, in a moment. But the sermon title, as we're going to get to, we won't get to it as quickly as we want to, because there's some things I think we need to learn about uh, the text. But this is about the fact that, that at Pentecost, there were 3,000 people who became Christians. And at the second sermon, there were five thousand people who entered into that redemptive story of forgiveness so automatically, jack out of the box, you get in the book of acts you 've got eight thousand people wham because what this book is about is not just the acts of the apostles it's the acts of the holy Spirit and so last week, as we opened the the, the that Passage in Acts 3, I mentioned that the focus of that passage wasn't about the healing. It wasn't about the beggar because you don't have the beggar's name. You don't have much about the beggar's faith. You don't have much about the beggar because it wasn't about the beggar. And so the idea that God is exploding and bringing into reality the fulfillment of all the prophecies of old are now taking place by the Holy Spirit applying the work that Christ did on the cross, who was also resurrected. And by that same resurrection power, Christ ascended into heaven and descended with the Holy Spirit. And here you've got a community, a kingdom, that is applying the very meaning of the cross into daily life. And our job is to go back 2,000 years ago to learn what they learned, in order to get what they got, in order to bring it forward, so that we have the same God doing the same work in our context and age. And so, as we got into that last week, I mentioned there's one thing as we read the Scriptures, and I just want to touch it uh, by way of review, that when we read the Scriptures, it's easy to get off into some of these rabbit trails. And so, the idea is that we need to listen to the big idea. So, when you read through a passage of Scripture... You you need to ask, hey God, what's the big idea? I mean, in the, in the in the right sense of the word, you're you're really trying to get to the meaning of what God is doing on earth, for heaven's sake. Well, I mean, that He's doing on earth, and so that you get in step with what the Spirit of God is doing. And therefore, when you read the scriptures, and today I want to go over some things to help you begin to approach the scriptures in such a way that you really are listening for the Spirit of God to give you that big idea and that you get in line with the Spirit. Because we've mentioned before that a lot of churches are accommodating to the culture or they're adapting to the culture, but our job is to align ourselves with what God is doing and stay right there. Well, today we're going to get into four ideas. And the four ideas that have come to mind that God has brought to my mind and there are things that I wanted to say and I thought I kept being pulled back. There are four things that we're going to get to and we'll introduce the, uh, for the next week's topic. We'll see how far we get in this one. But here are the four ideas. That one, there's, there's fire in the camp. And that fire in the camp is not a good fire. When Moses saw the burning bush that fire was consuming, but it didn't destroy. Same for Pentecost. When the Spirit of God came down in the tongues of fire, the message was alive, but it didn't destroy. But there's fire in the camp that is destructive that we'll talk about in a minute. We'll talk about this big word, hermeneutics. It's Again, it's an academic, a scholarly, theological word, but it simply means, and, and I'll talk a little bit about it, it means how you read Scripture. How you interpret Scripture, and I'll give you some thoughts that I think are very powerful for and passionate uh, concerns of mine. But we're going to go to this issue. What this passage is about is the issue of rejecting Christ or receiving Christ, and that's what this passage is going to focus on. That took place in those people who did respond and those who didn't respond, and the last which will lead us into next week, is we're going to look at this issue of repentance. And we're going to look at repentance in light of forgiveness, and that's going to open up a whole can of worms or a whole can of blessings. But that's where we're going to go to. But last week, I mentioned, as we got into that scenario of of Peter walk, Peter and John walking to the temple. They're just kind of strolling along. And at a moment's notice, here comes this beggar and his friends dropping him off at the steps at the beautiful gate. Now, I don't believe that Peter had any intention to seek out this beggar, but it just kind of happened in the moment as he passed by. And then God touched Peter and said, look at this. And we don't have what was going on in Peter's mind or heart as he saw this guy but something took place that caused Peter and John to stop and look at this beggar now this beggar you remember could not go into the temple was not part of the whole worshiping community and he always had to stay outside because he was crippled and as a defected uh, as a handicapped person he was not allowed to go in because he was considered unclean by the Levitical law He couldn't offer up sacrifice or bring, but he was a beggar. And I mentioned last week, we're all beggars. There was nothing that he had to offer, nothing that he could do. He was simply paralyzed in his response because he couldn't do anything to merit the attention. So it just happened upon him. So Peter stopped and said to the beggar, what I have, I'm giving to you. Uh, He wasn't looking for healing. He wasn't looking to do anything different out of the routine he'd been doing for 30-some years because he'd been comfortable in his pain, comfortable in his condition, Say, well, this is, this is as good as it gets, folks. I'm just going to be a beggar till I die, until Jesus came along. And so there's a lot of things about this one. But one of the points that I mentioned last week was that the big idea in this passage is that God did a miracle, and he healed this beggar, But this beggar never gave a chance to give his testimony. And from here on, the beggar is no longer the focal point. But God touched this man and did a miracle with with ankles that couldn't work and feet that weren't formed. And he had never walked a day in his life. After God healed him, he got up and he stood with John and Peter and he walked into the temple in his rags for the first time to worship. And I would submit that we focus on healing. We focus on miracles. We focus on things. But we missed the big point. And the point was, this man was now sitting in his right mind with a full heart to worship God. And that was the true miracle. God not only healed the physical, God healed the spiritual. And this guy got up and walked into worship. Well, Let me use that as a kicking point to jump into this idea that there's fire in the camp. Because when it comes to this issue of staying focused on Jesus Christ and worshiping Christ and following Christ, we are in a day and age where we're in a lot of people who aren't doing that. And you may be all over the map. You may be here today and you may be like several people influenced like there are people Has this great quote, and I want to read this to you, so because this this is true, and may be true of you, but I want to invite you to think about it with me. He said, "It's an astonishing that sometimes we believe that we believe what really in our hearts we don't believe." Do you get that? Let me say that again slowly. It's astonishing that sometimes we believe that we believe what in our hearts. We really don't believe. And I would translate that by saying, there are a lot of Christians who are pretending that God has done more for them than he really has. So they have to fake it in one sense. They have to give the right answer. But in the heart of hearts, they don't. If you really peel back the the surface, at the core, there are people that are struggling very deeply with their faith. And yet, where do you go with that? Where do you go with that? In Psalm 73, a worship leader had trouble when he looked at the world and he became envious of the secular world, that they were rich and wealthy and without pain and without problems. And he got led astray uh, to thinking that maybe I don't need God to live my life. And so he became envious and started lusting after the things that the world was offering. And uh, he says, it wasn't until I came into the temple that I saw the latter end you can get led astray and you can be influenced by things that will penetrate and sow seeds in your heart that really will destroy you, and you'll have no way of knowing that. Well, that's what's happening. So C.S. Lewis said, <clears throat> for a long time I believed that I believed in the forgiveness of sins. But suddenly, this truth appeared in my mind in so clear a light that I perceived it never before, and that after many times of... Con- and absolutions had I believed it with my whole heart. And here's the tension that you have a faith, but to believe it with your whole heart is uh, <clears throat> excuse me, is the, uh, is the whole focal point of what Paul was trying to say to Timothy. In Second Timothy three, if you have your Bible, turn to this or mark it down as a note because this isn't in the <clears throat> this is added. Uh, as of yesterday. And I, and I submit it to you to think about this. 2 Timothy 3, you know the famous passage uh, 316 All scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequately equipped for every good work. You've heard me say that. You've heard the Bible. It's a classic verse that the Bible is sufficient to help you become mature. And so when the child of God gets in the word of God, the spirit of God matures him to the man or the woman of God. But before that passage, I want to go to the previous passage right before it and underline this, verse 14. Listen to this. But as for you, to personalize it. As for you, Timothy, you continue in the things which you have learned. First verb. Second verb. And become convinced of. Become, have become convinced of. The second thing. There are many people who learn things about the Bible. They learn, they know a lot about the information from the Old Testament, the New Testament, they're familiar, but they have not become convinced. And that's the issue of your convictions of what you truly believe at the core, that when you find yourself saying that you believe this, but you really don't understand or understand what you believe or believe what you understand, but you just kind of give the right answer and you go on your life. But Paul says to Timothy, you've learned these things, now become convinced of them. And so we're talking about conviction. Now let me introduce to you <clears throat> a conversation I had this week over in Pittsburgh with, when I was there this week at the Pittsburgh Worship Initiative, which was talking about worship in the church and music in the church. And these, these discussions were talking about the new shift in, in the church of being focused on music as opposed to being focused on the scriptures. And so I want to say that one of the discussions I heard was about Marty Sampson. You may not know about Marty Sampson, but he is a worship singer, leader, writer, composer, a performer, and famous in Australia working with Hillsong. And he came out recently saying, I'm done. I don't believe it anymore. After 20-some years of worshiping, leading, and publicly being recognized around the world as being a man who's walking with God, singing worship songs. All of a sudden he says, I'm done. I don't believe it anymore. And he turns and walks away. And as you listen to him, as he tells the story, he started to listening to, to people who were talking about science and creation. Well, I don't know if the Bible's true because the Bible has some inconsistencies or science says this, and so there was a crack in his faith that little bit by little bit, he began to waver because he didn't have, he had learned things but hadn't become convinced of them. Another guy, Bart Campolo, does his name ring a bell? Yeah. Uh, His son, uh, his his dad is famous as a pastor, as a Baptist pastor. And so, uh, Bart... Is following his son, was a worship leader for how many years? 20, 30 years? And he too came to the point of saying, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that what the Bible says is really needed. That I don't believe that Jesus Christ really came to earth to die for our sins. Because you don't need a death to forgive people. And the fact that God would kill his son, that doesn't make sense to me. And he began to have severe questions with his faith and walked away and now has become a full-fledged humanist atheist to say it's no longer true. And now his pastor, Baptist pastor dad, uh, Tony Campolo, and his atheist son is now in conflict, but now they're trying to deal with that tension. What I'm saying is you can have all the information but you may not have the conviction or the experience that what you think you believe is really what you believe or you don't live as though you believe it. And so now he is at the University of Southern California as a humanist as a humanist uh, chaplain and trying to work on the good things. Now, that's not, now, that's not new. You, the last guy was Charles Schultz. You've heard of him, the Peanuts character, uh, creator. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was a faithful man. And, and after a long period of time, he began to write in his comic strips all these things about religion and prayer and faith. And Lucy and Charlie Brown would have these discussions. And so if you read them carefully, you will hear Charles Schultz's faith shifting as he writes. But at the end, he said, uh, "I don't. I don't think I hold to the... Biblical thinking. It's more about being good, being a humanist again, and he walked away from the faith, even though he'd been in Sunday school for years. Now, I'm saying this because of one reason. As a pastor, I'm concerned that what you think you believe and what you do believe is really grounded in a way that your faith is genuine, that you not only learn, but you have real convictions about it. Convictions so that you'll stand up and fly the flag. Hey, I'm a Christian, and I'm not ashamed to be a Christian. I believe what God says is true because Jesus Christ said it was true. And then you're thinking about your faith and you're growing in your faith. You really come to the point of saying, I've got some serious questions. And here in the church, we are a learning community. This is a great community to allow for people to have free discussions about whatever. And But a lot of people don't have that freedom. One of the guys I met in prison in Kairos, he, uh, he told me why he became so angry at the church. And the reason why he got angry was because he had long hair as a kid and he would go to a particular church and the elders of the church said, doesn't nature itself teach you that if you have long hair, it's a sin? You shouldn't have long hair. And the guy was taken out of the church says, we don't want you in the church because of your long hair. He went to another church and started dating a Christian gal and that church didn't receive him instead of saying, you know, uh, you need to cut your hair. And the hair was the issue. That guy went on to become a master's student at Taylor University, getting his Bible degree in Bible so that he could destroy Christians. And he did. In prison. He would attack Christians and destroy their faith until I met him. And he still was, he didn't change, but he met somebody who knew the scriptures and held him in check. But there's a lot of people out there that were trying to destroy. Now, the, prob- the problem is... In our culture, there's a lot of things that you can argue that are not good about the church. You will find arguments that like, like Marty Sampson, or uh, it was Bart who went to uh, was it Cincinnati or Pittsburgh, but he was so undone by the poverty that he saw And the questions of poverty led him to question the sovereignty of God. And therefore, he says, just a short way, when you start to question the sovereignty of God, then you start to question the authority of God, then you start questioning the veracity of God, and then sooner or later, he was just out the door. He says, I just don't believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sin. You don't need to do that. And so he fell away because of this reality Because of this reality that he couldn't fit into his theology. So what did he do? He changed his theology. And so his reality was the authority. His theology was supposed to be under and didn't fit. So he threw it away. That happens. Same for Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer says this. That when biblical orthodoxy, when you have the right teaching, but it doesn't have compassion, it's surely the ugliest thing in the world. This is fair sayism. But I would submit to you, the other side is also true, that when you have compassion without biblical orthodoxy, you are toxic and dangerously caught up in a lie of darkness and deceit. Both are true. And so when you get to the spiritual gifting seminar, which is coming up next month, pay attention to that, We'll get into these issues because they're both are addressed. But here's the point. If you have a traditional background, if you're a Quaker, you're a Catholic, you're a Presbyterian, you're Episcopalian, and that becomes your identity with your tradition. You identify and you follow the system of thinking, or it could be science, or it could be your culture, or it could be uh, pain, or suffering that dominates your thinking. And when you come to the idea that what you are all about, it's all about you, you become the focal point. And if you're not the focal point, it's the experience of healing. It's the experience of miracles. It's the experience of tongues. It's the experience of something. But it's the experience that people are after. Or when you let sin dominate. When you have any of these things control, really what's going on in the heart as opposed to having the Bible being the authority, the Bible being the one that informs. If there's something wrong, it's not going to be the Scriptures. It's going to be something wrong over here. But there's a tension, and you've got to feel the tension because there are things, as you approach the Bible, there are things that are difficult to understand. And therefore, if you are going to be an honest person, a person of integrity, you're going to have to have more honesty and humility to say, I don't know, but I'm going to submit myself to what Jesus Christ taught in Scripture. And therefore, I'm not the authority. The transcendent one, the imminent one, he comes to give his word because the Spirit of God clearly, clearly has spoken. And we listen to him. In in a multitude of ways, God communicates. And God wants to communicate. He, He created the word for us. He is the word, which means he wants to express himself and be understood. And therefore, we know that the Holy Spirit is our companion as we read because he will guide us into the truth clearly. The Spirit clearly says, and if you're listening to the Spirit, he's going to say, At the latter times, some will abandon the faith, following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through the hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. The Spirit says, and so to understand that the Bible is not just a textbook, it's a living word from the Father, about the Son, and the Spirit of God makes it alive to apply what the Son did to help us understand the Father and the Spirit. All those things we're learning to become convinced of. And therefore, you have to ask this question. What is it? What does it mean to have faith? And those are solid questions. What does it mean to have faith? Well, the fire in the camp, says, you don't need faith. You don't need faith. You just need to be good. And so Richard Niebuhr was the one who said, we are in a culture that wants a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. We have rewritten the whole show and those who leave the cross of Christ and they leave this Christ-centeredness they will have a different kind of faith. And for that reason, I would say, and I submit, that this issue of hermeneutics, for me, as you've been around me long enough to know, I have become convinced, I've learned it, and I'm convinced that this is probably the number one issue facing the church today in America. Evangelicals are at war on this issue hermeneutics, the application of the Bible, how you understand the truth of God, the kingdom, the redemptive story. Uh, for me, this is my journey. As a young man, as a non-believer, I came into the, uh, I came into the church when I was 19, and I grew. And in 1972, May, uh, in May, I became uh, born again. 1972, several years later, I met these men. The first one was Francis Schaefer. In 1978, he was in Indianapolis, and he was the first one to introduce me to the word hermeneutics. And he would say, Christians are not prepared psychologically to deal with the onset that's coming up because of the secularization of our world. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but he was screaming at the top of his lungs and saying, there is a wall 10 miles high and 10 miles wide that the, what the believer believes and what the non-believer believes are so different that they can't connect. And Christians weren't prepared. In 1978, he said this. So I registered that. It really made an impression. Then two years later, or a year later, 1979, I went to Urbana, Illinois, and I heard Billy Graham speak. And Billy Graham then as well emphasized that work of hermeneutics. And he said, Christians think with their heart, they don't think with their head. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. You go to a seminary and said no, no, that's bad theology. You can't prove Jesus lives because you have this experience. You prove that Jesus lived because historically he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. It happened outside of you. It's true whether you have it in your heart or not. It's true because it's true because he is who he is. And he did what he said he would do. Billy Graham said that and he said, Christians, think with your head. We need greater emphasis to helping people learn the faith. A third guy I came back, the third guy is Anthony Thistleton, wrote a book this thick, and I said, I'm going to kill myself if I don't get through this, it's 600, 700 pages, and he was the first guy that began to introduce me to the serious work of hermeneutics when he talked about this idea, there are two horizons, and when you read the Bible from your horizon, you're going to distort it every time. And so he was the one that introduced me to getting back into Scripture to understand what was being done then then, and what was revealed then and then to bring it forward. He was greatly influential, though that was the toughest book I've ever had to read. In 1993-94, in the University of Michigan, I drove three and a half hours to Winona Lake, one day a week, to meet with Larry Crabb and Dan Allender. A counselor who began to talk about the real problems that people have. But I will tell you, in my time with Larry and Dan, I think both of these guys have became a model for me to say that they are more rooted in Bible study and making the Bible relevant and true in their relationship with Christ, so that people are changed from the inside out in a very genuine way. These five men so influenced me to say that hermeneutics, the way you think about Scripture, the way you think about God, the way you think about yourself, the way you think about the world, is either going to be influenced by the Spirit of God or by something else. And therefore... For that reason, you've heard me say, and I think it's good to review, that here at Chesterland Baptist Church, we want to be biblical. And what that means is this. First of all, it's Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Marty Sampson went off because it wasn't Christ-centered. It was about uh, science or something else. Uh, Bart Campolo went off because he's thinking about social justice and something else. Uh, uh, when you got a, a Charles Schultz thinking about humanism and being good to people, it's, some, it's about being Christ centered. And I find that every time I get into an argument with an, an atheist or somebody who's, who's resisting, it's not about Christ. We're talking about the church, we're talking about hypocrites, we're talking about something, but they're not talking about Christ. And therefore, I bring you back to being Christ centered. It's all about Christ. He's the of bonum. He's the highest part of the scriptures. He's the one we look to. The Spirit of God elevates him. And so we want to be Christ-centered people. Two, we are focused on the revelation. This is not research. This is not man-made, discovered, or voted upon by popular vote. This is God's word spoken to you. And as he speaks to you, he speaks personally to you. He speaks corporately to us, but he speaks. And because he speaks, um, Francis would say, we have real knowledge and real meaning because there's a real God who really has spoken. And therefore, we believe that revelation, not because it's our experience or our tradition, but because it's true. You move into the revelation. What is that revelation? It's the gospel message, that redemptive message that man has left God. And because man has left God, his thinking is dark and he's groping. He can't find God even if he wanted to. But God had to come to man in the Son, in the And Christ came to redeem us from all the fact that we had separated. It's not our sins. It's not counting the things that we've done wrong. It's the fact that we are in opposition. And we don't want God. And that's the that's the miracle that takes place with every crippled faith, with everyone who comes to Christ. And the miracle then, there's a restoration. A restoration, not just a physical healing, but a restoration of the relationship where you can step into a relationship knowing that you really are forgiven that you really are accepted, that you really are enjoyed, that you really are redeemed, and that you really are bound for heaven to to a greater glory, but God is going to shepherd you all the way through, and that's going to take place through every relationship. And it's about relationships. It's not about religion. It's not about culture. It's not about problem solving. It's about Jesus Christ and his relationship with you. And therefore, the question is, you've got to have questions. How's your prayer life? How strong is your faith? If you were to die tonight, where would you go? Do you have the love of Christ flowing through your heart? And the answer is no. (laughs) You don't have a full heart for God. You don't love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind because you're still falling far short from the glory of God. You may have 10%, 15%, 60%, and depending on the day, but you're growing more and more day by day to increase your faith. So you've got to have a lot of questions. With that beggar, with the beggar, I was thinking about the beggar last week, and I was thinking, was he healed alone? It says he was healed, but it doesn't say he was saved. Was the beggar saved? Did the beggar accept Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior and he's going to get into heaven? It didn't say that. Was he seeking God? It didn't say that. Was his sins forgiven? It doesn't say that in this passage. It just says he was healed and he, he, he worshipped. He walked into worship. Now, now some of the things, the reason why I bring this up is that the text will give you some information. It doesn't give you the whole information, which we'll look at it in a minute. What did he do afterwards? Did he get a job? Because he had to quit begging. What was his life act? It didn't say that. It only gives us a snapshot because his life isn't the focal point, the fact that something more is going on. But he, the focal point is not the healing. The focal point was his worship. Remember that Jesus healed 10 lepers, nine went away, one came back. Just because you have a healing doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you have an experience doesn't mean you know Christ. And therefore, you have to get to that second question. Got truth? Got faith? Got truth? Got questions? Got love? All these questions, you got answers? (laughs) So there's lots of things for us. But here's what Schaefer would say. If God exists and we're made in his image, we can have real meaning. I believe that. I am convinced of that. Are you? But you have real meaning. And therefore, no one should, you should back down from no one, scientist, atheist, prisoner, anybody, because you have something to share. And what you have, you will give to every beggar, because you have Christ. And therefore, you have what he's communicated to us. Now, when you read the scriptures, and I'm going to move towards the third part, what I want you to know is this when you read your Bible, and you're before Christ, and you say, Christ, I want to see you, you may have been told that there are certain techniques you can use. And these are good things. They help us start our thinking. Is there a sin to avoid in this passage? Well, sure. You find people who reject Christ, or don't want to find, fo- follow Christ. There are lessons to be learned from everyone. Is there a promise to claim? Sure. There are lots of things in the the Bible that God promises to do. If you listen and you learn those and you're convinced of those, it shapes your faith. Is there an example to follow? Good and bad. Yes. You look at those things that the Bible is bringing to our attention about God can heal crippled faith. God can heal crippled people. God can heal. God can do miracles and goes on and on. Is there a command for me to obey? Yes, there is a command a new law given to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Therefore, Christ isn't just kind of occupying space or talking a a sermon without reason. He wants to transform our lives. And therefore, is there any knowledge or intimate work about God himself, Christ or the Holy Spirit, that you walk away because you have met with Christ and you worship him in an intimate way, in a loving way because you know who he is? and what he does. This is for you, believer. And then you apply that to your life. Well, you've heard those ways. You may have heard something like that. But I'm going to give you two more things. When you get into Scripture, and your brain is turned on, and you're thinking well, and your heart's there, and your, your mind's going, and God's leading, you're going to have two kinds of questions you're going to find you can deal with. One is a question that man asks, people ask about the Scripture. The second are the questions that God asks. God's asking questions. And if we had the right spirit, we would be listening to God's questions and God's answers as he gives the answers in the book. But as we listen to those, we are filled with the knowledge of how God sees us And enjoys us as opposed to starting with man-centeredness. We want to be Christ-centered and listen to Christ. These two questions. And what Christ, what God is asking is, what are you going to do with my son? Where are you, Adam? What's your relationship with me? It's not what you believe. It's not what you have faith in. It's not what you understand. It's who he is. What is your relationship? Do you believe in him? Not what you believe, but who you believe? And every question, every conversation with an unbeliever comes to that point, What are you going to do with my son? Will you follow him, or you will reject him? And therefore, understand that for when Christ's spirit comes upon you, he will guide you into all the truth. Truth. And so if you're not paying attention to the Spirit, you will be led into error. And therefore, we come back to the convictions. Now, this is the reason why we read the book of Acts. It's very important. And last week I said, you've got to read this book historically. You've got to read it in the context of what was actually happening, as much as you can understand from the text. But then you read it theologically. God heals people. God searches for people. He looks for people. He's doing so through his Son, and through his Spirit, and through his people. Those are theological uh, categories. But you also read the Bible devotionally. Lord, I don't understand you. Lord, I want to know you more. Lord, I want you to guide me into the truth. I want you to guide me into my relationship with you so that I grow in faith, that I understand the hope. You read it devotionally, but you also read it personally. Meaning, I don't have that faith. I don't have that devotion. Lord, would you meet me here and grow me, heal me, change me, teach me. It's a very deeply personal spiritual walk with God that he's got us on. And we do it not only alone, we do it corporately. And therefore, you struggle with sin, I struggle with sin, you learn how to walk in the Spirit, you learn how to apply the the gospel. We all do it as a body so we become a learning community. Now you'll find a community in Acts 17 later where Paul would go and he said, now these Berean Jews were more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For when Paul went to those, they'd say that Jesus has come. Jesus is the Messiah. They said, now just a minute, Paul. Just a minute, Paul. I don't believe that. Let me go back to the scriptures. And so they went back into Isaiah. They went back to the prophets and they checked what Paul said according to the authority of the scripture. These Jews were more noble-minded because they understood what they believed. And they were checking it with the scripture. They were in line. We don't do that. Sometimes we just kind of, yeah, I believe that. Or just, but they were aggressive, proactive. They were checking what the pastor was saying. You should do the same for me. I may be saying something, say, well, Jerry, that's not biblical. And that's your right because we're as a body of Christ. We all are part of that. But it says that they received the scriptures every day, every day to see what Paul was saying was true. That was a learner. That was a disciple. That was a person growing in faith. All right, what is it? I'm going to stop here. Only to say that this is a chunk of scripture that we need to understand how to read the Bible. Because this Bible is going to give us pieces. And the pieces are just a... uh, a little part of Scripture. So here's the last thing for today. I'm going to call it quits. There is something, as you read the different kind of genres in Bible, you need to know what you're doing with Scripture. And this word, if I can get it here, synecdoche. Anybody know what a synecdoche is? Okay. Next slide. Synecdoche is, it means, it means, this phrase is a little phrase that represents the whole. Do I get it? There's the word, okay. So if I use the word gray beard, I use a gray beard. I refer to one part, but it represents the whole. We use this all the time in English. Uh, the word sails refers to a whole shi- ship. Boots refers to soldiers. I ask for her hand in marriage. But you're asking not just for her hand, you want the whole package. Synecdoche just says, you know, you're just getting a part, but the part represents the whole. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Well, you want the whole package. That's what the now here it is in the scriptures. The Jewish people would read this way, and they would understand this whole, not just this discreet reading, but they'd read the whole picture. And so you'd hear these pictures or these uh, phrases: "Jesus, give us this day our daily bread." Is that all you get? Just bread? No, no, no. When you ask God to hallow his name, you ask God to be all that he is, you're talk about. you talking about everything God is. This one part represents the whole. Hero Israel, the Lord is one, was the whole prayer as they opened up that it was a synecdoche that's going to open up the whole show. As you go through the scripture, uh, they were breaking bread, references to the Lord's summer, Supper, They were having an honest and good heart in Luke 8. It was not just the heart. It was the whole lifestyle. Well, as you get into that, when you hear the phrase and you hear the passage in in Acts 3, he says, repent and be converted. Those are trigger words. And what they understood was so much more than just a definition and an application. There's a whole way of thinking that was going to be taking place. And that way of thinking we'll get into next week has to do with what does it mean to be repenting? What does it mean to be converted? What does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to be forgiving? All of these are part and parcel that I want you to learn and become convinced of. Well, let me stop here. Because when you have 5,000 people at the temple, you realize there's a movement going on that took place then And for those who align themselves with Scripture, it will take a place again. Let's stop here. Because there's a lot more. But I want you to get prepared for this because God is on the move. In here, out there, and everywhere. Let's close in a word of prayer. Jesus, guide us into the truth that your word is your word and you mean to do what you say you mean to do. God, give us the faith that would believe you with the courage and with the conviction that you want us to have so that we wouldn't be pulled aside by every wind of doctrine or by every experience. But God, would you grace us now and help us grow in Christ and keep our eyes fixed on your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.